Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner, and here's a look at today's top stories. An Indonesia earthquake kills over 160. An LGBTQ plus nightclub shooting kills five. Russia pounds Ukrainian strongholds while the UN urges an end to nuclear power plant attacks. Rocket attacks against a Turkish border town kill two. The Kazakh president Tokayev wins re-election. Malaysia's currency and stock are volatile after a hung parliament. House GOP leader McCarthy plans a special committee on China. A $6 billion student loan settlement is approved. Bob Iger is returning to Disney as CEO. The Climate Summit adopts a historic loss and damage fund. And European World Cup soccer teams scrap One Love armbands. Our top story, tragedy strikes Indonesia as a Java quake kills over 160 and injures hundreds more. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Wall Street Journal, NBC News, Associated Press, Reuters, and the South China Morning Post. On Monday, the Indonesian island of Java was hit by a 5.6 magnitude earthquake that killed at least 162 people and injured hundreds. Search and rescue teams are still searching in the rubble of collapsed buildings. The earthquake was centered in the Chanjur area in West Java and struck at a depth of 6.2 miles. It did not create a tsunami. The earthquake damaged hundreds of homes in addition to a boarding school, a hospital, and government buildings. Approximately 700 people were injured because they were hit by collapsed buildings, according to Indonesian officials. Many of the casualties were students in a public school who had finished classes for the day and were taking additional lessons when the earthquake hit. The death toll is expected to rise further as many people are still trapped in isolated rural areas. Indonesia sits atop a highly active seismic zone dubbed the Pacific Ring of Fire, located around much of the rim of the Pacific Ocean. The Ring of Fire is where different plates on the Earth's crust converge and produce a high volume of earthquakes and volcanoes. Indonesia's Disaster Management Agency said the quake had displaced more than 5,300 people. Electricity was knocked offline, disrupting communications, while landslides made evacuations difficult. Scott, thank you for the facts of this terrifying story. During this podcast, we separate the spins from the facts, and for this story, we have Narrative Ace coming from Antara. With its vulnerable position in the Pacific Ring of Fire, Indonesia is no stranger to catastrophic seismic events. It's vital to build on indigenous knowledge and local strength in Indonesian communities to develop plans and more resilient earthquake infrastructure. There are valuable lessons learned from past experiences that can help this vulnerable nation better withstand earthquakes over time. We have a narrative B on this story from Al Jazeera. Indonesia has much work to do in the arena of building codes and earthquake safety. Failing masonry and lax regulations are part of the problem, as is the sheer level of risk in the ring of fire. Earthquake-resistant construction is a complex effort needing great attention. Deadly events like these are a wake-up call for the government to step up. And we have a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that at least 34,400 people will die as a result of the most deadly earthquake from 2020 to 2029. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I never lived in Indonesia, but I did live in the Bay Area, California for a number of years, right on the, you know, kind of on the other end of the ring of fire. It's amazing how 
cavalier everyone is, I guess, out of necessity about how, you know, a a deadly earthquake could kind of strike at any time. It's crazy. Tragic news coming from Colorado as five are dead in an LGBTQ plus nightclub shooting. And here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, Daily Wire, Independent, Forbes and CNN. A gunman on Saturday night opened fire inside an LGBTQ plus club in Colorado Springs, Colorado, killing five people and injuring 25. Club attendees subdued and detained the gunman until law enforcement arrived to take him into custody. After the arrest, the attacker was treated for his injuries. The 22-year-old gunman immediately began shooting after entering the venue before he was stopped by two club goers. The patrons were described as heroic by Colorado Springs Police Chief Adrian Vasquez. The perpetrator, identified by law enforcement as Anderson Lee Aldridge, was said to have been carrying two firearms, one being a long rifle. He was previously arrested in 2021 after his mother reported him for allegedly threatening her with a homemade bomb. But no explosives were found and no charges were pursued. The club goer said he heard four to five shots, but first thought the sounds were part of the music and continued dancing. When he heard, quote, more shots and saw the flash from the muzzle of the gun, he ran to the dressing room and locked the door and laid down on the floor. Court records show Aldrich has been charged with five counts of murder and five counts of committing a biased, motivated crime causing bodily injury, which is the Colorado equivalent of a heat crime. The attack came on the eve of Transgender Day of Remembrance, in which trans people who lost their lives to anti-trans violence and hate are remembered. The victims of the attack remain unidentified, though the parents of the Club Q employee Daniel Aston say their son was one of the dead. Oh, scary stuff here. We have uh, some narrative spins on this story, and unfortunately, they are highly political. Here's the Democratic narrative spin from Business Insider. Republicans should be able to connect the dots between their dangerous rhetoric and targeted mass shootings. Donald Trump's anti-Latino rants came before the deadliest anti-Latino shooting in U.S. history. And now, following the party's anti-LGBTQ campaign, there's been a deadly shooting at a gay club. Thoughts and prayers aren't good enough and don't excuse the rhetoric that helps cause these events. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Daily Wire. When an LGBTQ plus community is targeted, hypocritical outcries from Democrats inevitably follow. Yet again, the party in charge of the country's most crime-ridden cities is unashamedly blaming Republicans for a shooting. Yet they stay silent when dozens of people are murdered weekly in their own jurisdictions. They care about human lives when it's politically convenient, but not when their own constituents are the victims. And we have a nerd narrative. This one says there's a 1% chance that the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution protecting the right to bear arms will be amended or repealed before the year 2025, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Eric, this story is is no laughing matter. It's just a horrible tragedy. But pretty far down on my list of priorities, uh, God bless the state of Colorado for trying to be as tolerant as possible, is trying not to offend the people that commit hate crimes by calling it a bias motivated crime. Is that do we need to do we need to sugarcoat it for these people? I mean, really, what what they call it? A bi- a what? A bias? A bias motivated. What is it? Uh, let me let me see here. A bias motivated crime causing bodily injury. Come on. Bias motivated crime. Hmm. 
Shifting to the conflict in Ukraine, we've reached day 271 of the fighting as Russian forces pound Ukrainian strongholds and the UN urges an end to attacks on the Zaporizhia plant. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Pravda, The New York Times, and The Telegraph. Nearly 400 strikes were launched in the eastern region by Russian forces against Ukrainian troops on Sunday, according to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The fiercest battles, as before, are in the Donetsk region, he said in a video address. He continued, there have been almost 400 artillery attacks in the east since the start of the day. According to Kyiv-based military analyst Ole Zhdanov, Russian forces have been attempting to penetrate Ukrainian lines of defense in areas such as Bakut and Adivka, but to no avail. He added, we fight back. They suffer huge losses. Elsewhere, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, the UN's atomic watchdog, on Monday called for an end to attacks on the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine which remains occupied by Russian forces and was hit by heavy shelling over the weekend. Russian spokesperson Igor Konashenkov claimed that Ukraine hit the plant twice on Sunday, but Ukrainian state-owned energy company Enerhuatam has blamed Moscow's forces for the ongoing strikes. With Ukrainians facing ongoing shortages of electricity and hot water on Monday, Zelensky marked celebrations of the Day of Dignity and Freedom by telling people to stand tall till the end in order not to lose freedom, not to lose independence, not to lose Ukraine. He also noted that there were plans for Ukrainians to gather an independent square to observe the occasion. Meanwhile, Polish Defense Minister Mariusz Blazak on Monday announced plans to propose deploying additional air defense systems near the country's border with Ukraine. His remarks follow an offer from Germany to ship Patriot missile systems to secure its airspace. Finally, the Office of Ukraine's general prosecutor claimed that four premises used as torture sites by Russian forces had been discovered in Kherson. Alleged evidence includes a device with which the occupiers tortured civilians with electricity, according to prosecutors. Scott, thanks for the update and those facts. And we do have a couple of spins to talk about, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative, and it's coming from New Scientists. Experts have made it clear the situation at Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant presents the threat of another Chernobyl. A nuclear disaster has miraculously been avoided so far, but the continuing risks and the safety and effectiveness of staff to control the reactors could have catastrophic consequences. And an establishment critical narrative comes from Politico. Although Zaporizhia's cooling systems will be relatively vulnerable due to their contact with the outside world, the worst-case scenario would only cause severe damage at a local level. Both Russia and Ukraine are overstating the risk of nuclear catastrophe to galvanize domestic and international support. And we do have a nerd narrative. It says there's a 14% chance that there will be a serious radiation incident at any nuclear plant in Ukraine, By 2024, that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Both spins are saying the same thing. One of them is saying, "Uh, don't worry, this would only cause another Chernobyl. And the other one's saying, this could cause another Chernobyl. Yeah, I know. It could. I I mean, I remember remember Chernobyl. I'm still, I mean, I still don't, I don't know what to do with this third arm. We turn our attention to violence happening in Turkey as a rocket attack against a Turkish border town kills two. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, New York Times, CBS, Independent, and Washington Post. 
According to Turkish officials, three people were killed after rockets fired from Syria hit the Turkish district of Karkamis near the Syrian border on Monday. Ankara claims that the attack was committed by the People's Protection Units, or YPG, a Kurdish militia in northern Syria. Five rockets were reportedly fired, one of them hitting a school, leaving 10 people injured, two of them seriously. The attack comes a day after Turkish airstrikes hit targets associated with Kurdish-dominated forces across northern Syria and Iraq, reportedly killing more than two dozen people. However, the exact number is still unclear. Turkey claimed the airstrikes were in response to a recent bombing of a busy Istanbul street that killed six and wounded 80, saying that it targeted areas, quote, used as a base by terrorists in their attacks on our country. Kurdish militants have denied their involvement in the attack. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, or SOHR, also reported that among those killed were soldiers in the Syrian army, which is deployed to some areas on the Syrian-Turkish border. Turkey has launched numerous operations in northern Syria and Iraq against Kurdish militias it accuses of being affiliated with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, which has waged an armed campaign in Turkey since the 1970s. The YPG is part of the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, which Turkey accuses of being a front for the PKK. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Daily Sabah brings us Narrative A. Turkey is exercising its right to fight terrorism on its borders. The PKK is using Syria and Iraq as launch pads to conduct terrorist attacks in Turkish territory, like the tragic bombing in Istanbul earlier this month. And Kar's retaliation against Kurdish terrorist targets successfully helped to protect the Turkish people and the border. And Narrative B is courtesy of Rudolf. Turkey is playing with fire as it continues to act aggressively against the Kurdish people. The SDF has fully denied any involvement in the attack in Istanbul, and a Turkish offensive into northern Syria would seriously endanger the SDF's fight against the Islamic State in the area. Ankara cannot be allowed to attack the Kurdish people without repercussions. Do you like small or large curd cottage cheese? I actually, have you had those fried cheese curds they have in yes. the Midwest? Oh, those yeah. Those things are good. Oh, my God, they're so good. I love fried cheese curds. Yeah. In Seattle, there's a place called Beecher's where they don't fry the cheese curds, but it's like a cheese store. They kind of ship all over the country. You probably see them somewhere, but you can just eat the raw cheese curds, and they're like really squeaky if you, if you bite into them. They're really good, but they're like squeaky. It's weird. Yeah. Kazakh President Tokiev wins re-election. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Euractive, Independent, Associated Press, Yahoo News, and the Astana Times. Kazakh President Kasim Jomart Tokayev secured a second term in Sunday's snap presidential election, winning 81.3% of the vote, the country's Central Election Commission announced Monday. According to the preliminary results, Tokayev's five opposing candidates scored low single-digit results, with the against-all option achieving the second-best result of 5.8%. Turnout in the early elections announced by Tokayev in September was 69.4%, with 11 million voters registered. Tokayev became president in 2019 after the first post-independence president, Nursan Nazarbayev, resigned. In January, however, more than 220 people were killed in the former Soviet Republic during protests against rising fuel prices and the still influential former ruler. 
In response to the deadly protest, Tokayev dismissed Nazarbayev from the Security Council and introduced a series of reforms, including strengthening parliament and limiting the presidency to a single seven-year term, which means he could rule until 2029. The snap presidential elections were originally set for late 2024, but were rescheduled after January's protests, followed by a constitutional referendum. On Sunday, Tokayev announced he would continue restructuring the political system with early parliamentary elections in 2023. Meanwhile, election observers from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE, confirmed the election's efficient conduct, but criticized the polls for lacking competitiveness and stressed the need for further reforms to meet the organization's pluralism standards. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story as we look at the two spins that have emerged, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Asia Times. Kazakhstan still has a long way to go before it can be called a full-fledged democracy. However, Tokayev's election victory indicates that Kazakhs support his important reforms. Besides, with his government refusing to side with Russia over its invasion of Ukraine and instead turning its attention to China and the U.S., the country is clearly on the right track. And the Daily Mail gives us the establishment critical narrative. Given the short campaign period, which began in late October, and Tokayev's five obscure rivals, the snap elections were a farce. Moreover, thanks to his reforms, the authoritarian Tokayev can now secure a seven-year term in office. And although he pretends to distance himself from Russia over the Ukraine war, it was only with Moscow's support that he was able to quell the nationwide protests and thus hold on to power. News coming from Malaysia as currency and stock is volatile as the vote ends in a hung parliament. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Straits Times, Al Jazeera, CNN, BBC News and New York Times. Malaysia's stock market and ringgit currency plunged in early trade on Monday after the nation elected a hung parliament for the first time in its history over the weekend. The benchmark Kuala Lumpur, the benchmark Kuala Lumpur Composite Index fell up fell by up to 1.5%, while the ringgit dropped almost 0.8% against the U.S. dollar before recovering following Sultan Abdullah Ahmad Shah's decision to grant rival party leaders a one-day extension to form a new government. This comes as the opposition-led Pakatan Harapan, or PH Coalition, and the Parakatan Nasional, PN Coalition, have each claimed to have enough support among lawmakers to form an administration despite both failing to cross the 112-seat threshold in Saturday's national election. According to results from the Malaysian Electoral Commission, Anwar Ibrahim's multi-ethnic PH secured 82 seats out of 220, while former Prime Minister Muyidan Yassin's Malay-based PN won 73 seats. Meanwhile, the Ismail Sabri Yaqob-led ruling coalition suffered its worst electoral defeat ever. It has secured only 30 of the 178 seats it was contesting, with voters reportedly turning to the PN and the conservative Islamic party, PAS, instead. This first-hung parliament adds new turmoil and uncertainty to a country that has already seen two new prime ministers in less than two years. Narrative A comes from FMT. All coalitions are market-friendly and significant political unrest is unlikely to occur in Malaysia, However, this electoral uncertainty will inevitably create economic turbulence, continuing to affect the ringgit and stock market ahead of what economists anticipate will be a difficult year. 
To make things worse, the next government may prioritize implementing populist policies to stay in power following an inevitably gloomy term. And narrative B coming from The Star. A hung parliament should be no surprise as rotation governments have, more recently, become commonplace. Volatility may indeed see investors get nervous in the short term until a new government is finally formed. But Malaysia's economy is strong, and fiscal consolidation will remain a top priority in the country. Returning our sights to U.S. politics, the House GOP leader McCarthy plans a special committee on China. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Saltwire, Reuters, the South China Morning Post, Fox News, Axios, and ABC. Republican leader in the U.S. House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, revealed on Sunday that he would form a select committee on China to tackle an alleged lack of international scrutiny by the Biden administration. McCarthy said he would implement this if he becomes Speaker of the House. He branded the PRC as the main nation responsible for so-called intellectual property theft. He vowed to no longer allow the Biden administration to sit back and let Beijing do what they are doing to America. McCarthy stressed he would focus on the Chinese-made fentanyl crossing America's southern border. The origins of the coronavirus pandemic and reports of unauthorized Chinese police stations operating in the U.S. Speaking on Fox News Sunday, McCarthy also reaffirmed that he would keep his promise to remove Eric Swalwell, Democrat of California, Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, and Elon Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, from their congressional committees when Republicans retake control in the new Congress. Only a majority vote by the entire House has the power to remove a member from a standing committee. This power is not conferred to the Speaker of the House alone. Schiff reacted Sunday, stating that the next Congress was going to be chaos with Republican leadership. Schiff suggested that McCarthy's leadership is heavily influenced by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia. Those were the facts. Now we've got two spins, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from USA Today. McCarthy has telegraphed that his potential speakership will be politically volatile. Although he's favored to be the next Speaker of the House, with only a weak Republican majority, This is not a done deal yet. McCarthy is struggling for support and will have to bend to the will of outlandish, hard-right conservatives if he's to land the job. And the Republican narrative comes from the New York Post. With a microscopic majority in the House, McCarthy's potential first job as Speaker must be to temper expectations. The GOP's most important achievement, removing Nancy Pelosi from the role, has already been achieved. With realism, subtlety, and creativity, House Republicans can now attempt to pass legislation to show a solution-oriented agenda. And a nerd narrative says there's a 76% chance that the Republicans will win control of the U.S. House of Representatives in 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. In our next story, a court approves a $6 billion student loan settlement. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Forbes, Business Insider, NPR Online News, and Washington Post. On Wednesday, a U.S. federal judge granted final approval of a settlement that will lead to an estimated $6 billion in student loan forgiveness for over 200,000 allegedly defrauded student loan borrowers. The agreement was initially approved by the Education Department in June. The lawsuit, Sweet versus Cardona was filed in 2019 
by student loan borrowers who accused the Education Department of failing to process or arbitrarily denying their student loan forgiveness applications under the Borrower Defense to Repayment. Borrower's Defense allows federal student loan borrowers to ask the Education Department to erase their debts if a school has lied to them about their job prospects, credit transferability, or likely salary after graduation. As part of the settlement, the Education Department identified 153 institutions, many of which are for-profit colleges, as having evidence of, quote, substantial misconduct, whether credibly alleged or, in some instances, proven. The agreement will also see an additional 64,000 students who didn't attend any of the listed schools receive decisions on the applications based on a rolling deadline and required decisions be made within three years for any borrower who filed an application after June 22nd. Diametrically opposed political narratives on this story, we have a Democratic narrative spin from the Washington Post. The finalization of this settlement is a victory for Americans overburdened by student debt. Finally, borrowers defrauded by universities will get the loan forgiveness they're entitled to, and the mountainous backlog of debt relief claims will be addressed. This is a clear win. And the Republican narrative coming from Forbes. Biden has given the Education Department a reckless blank check to write off billions of dollars of debt without congressional approval. A large percentage of debt is held by doctors, lawyers, and other well-paid professionals. This settlement is unfair to the American taxpayers who are footing the bill and the schools that are deemed guilty without due process. I sued uh, Hamburger University last year because when I went to work at McDonald's, I was only getting paid like $2 an hour. They promised me $100,000 a year to fry fries. Well, I, on the other hand, am a sandwich artist <laughs> oh, at Subway. So, okay. you know, you're part of the aristocracy then. That's right. Iger returning to Disney as CEO for two years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, CBS, CNBC, The Guardian, Wall Street Journal and The New York Times. On Sunday, the Walt Disney Company's board announced that former CEO Bob Iger who stepped down in 2020, will return to the position replacing his successor, Bob Chappick. Board Chair Susan Arnold said that the 71-year-old who led the company for 15 years and oversaw its acquisitions of Marvel, Pixar, Lucasfilm, Fox's entertainment businesses, and the debut of its Disney Plus streaming service was uniquely situated for the position at this time. Disney shares jumped on the news which came days after Chappick announced plans to cut costs, particularly related to Disney+. Plus, Shares had declined 41% on the year as of Friday, also striking a 52-week low on November 9th. Chappick navigated disruption caused by the COVID pandemic, which saw a rise in competition from streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, and forced him to close some of Disney's theme parks. He also dealt with political pressure from the public over Florida's so-called don't-say-gay laws. Chappick had repeatedly suggested that Disney Plus would be profitable by September of 2024, but it lost $1.47 billion last year, which was more than twice the loss from the previous year. The board has given Iger two years to lead Disney through its current complications and mentor a new successor. Though it saw a total revenue increase of 9% in the last three months, this was still offset by the streaming losses and lower total growth than analysts expected. Those were the facts, and we have two spins. 
beginning with a left narrative coming from Huffington Post. Disney needs someone with Iger's track record to get things back on track. He's already had a quick impact on investors, giving the stock a much-needed boost just one day after the announcement. His stability will help with the public criticism the company took for not standing taller against the anti-LGBTQ bills of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And we have a right narrative spin from Breitbart. Iger's return is lauded by Wall Street and Disney fans alike, but the company has just reinstated the man who set it down its detrimental, woke path in the first place. No one knows how this move will work out in the long run, but hopefully it won't be focused on appealing to fringe liberal employees and consumers. In our next story, a historic loss and damage fund adopted at COP27. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the South China Morning Post, Al Jazeera, Bangkok Post, Le Monde, Guardian, and Washington Post. After days of intense negotiations that stretched into the early morning on Sunday, countries at the UN COP27 climate summit in Egypt agreed to establish a compensation fund for developing nations suffering from climate change impacts. The agreement serves as a victory for developing nations that have fought for decades for compensation for loss and damage from extreme weather events said to be the result of greenhouse emissions from wealthy countries. Pakistan's climate minister, Sherry Raymond, stated that COP27 had, quote, responded to the voices of the vulnerable, the damaged and the lost of the whole world. She affirmed, quote, we have struggled for 30 years on this path, and today, in Sharm el-Sheikh, this journey has achieved its first positive milestone. The funding for loss and damage is still vague. Pledges for the fund are proportionately quite small, as loss and damage from climate change could potentially cost developing countries $290 billion to $580 billion annually by 2030. Further details about the plan will likely be refined at the next climate conference to take place in the UAE in November of 2023. Many diplomats and activists at the summit praised the compensation fund. Others worried that nations' reluctance to adopt more ambitious climate plans to save the plus 1.5 degrees Celsius goal set in the 2015 Paris Agreement has left the planet on a dangerous warming path. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative spin on this story from Earth.org. This is a landmark deal. The Loss and Damage Fund aims at helping countries that are particularly vulnerable to climate change. For the first time, COP has listened to the voices of those on the front line of the climate crisis. It's not enough, but it will help lead the way for the future and take the necessary first steps toward justice. Washington Post is giving us an establishment critical narrative for this story. COP27 failed. Short-sighted political leaders and a sense of apathy have delayed necessary action toward the most ambitious goals set in the Paris Agreement. It's now inevitable the world will surpass what scientists consider a safe warming threshold. Because of the failure in Sharm el-Sheikh, the only questions now are how much the Earth will warm and how many people will suffer. We have a nerd narrative on this story as well. This one says there's a 50% chance that the average global temperature in the year 2100 will be 2.54 degrees Celsius higher than the average global temperature in 1880. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Our final story comes at the intersection of sports and human rights as European teams scrap the One Love armbands at the World Cup. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NewsBud, CNN, ESPN, and The Guardian. 
Seven European soccer associations have pulled out from plans to wear LGBTQ supporting One Love armbands at the FIFA World Cup in Qatar due to the threat of players receiving yellow cards. The soccer associations, England, Wales, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, and Switzerland, stated that they weren't willing to risk sporting sanctions against their players, asserting that they were very frustrated by the decision. The One Love armband is part of a campaign to promote inclusion and oppose discrimination. Teams hope to wear them to show opposition against Qatar's stance on LGBTQ rights. Homosexuality is illegal in Qatar. FIFA had announced at the start of the tournament that there would be seven different armbands for each round of the competition, each with various social messages. Since the announcement by the seven soccer federations, FIFA has announced that the No Discrimination armband, previously set to be available only at the quarterfinal stage, will be available during the entire tournament. LGBTQ plus groups and activists have condemned the decision by FIFA with charity Stonewall, accusing it of brushing criticism of human rights abuses under the carpet. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin on this story is an establishment critical narrative coming from SF Gate. Allowing Qatar to host the World Cup was a shameful decision, and banning players from showing their support for a severely marginalized group only adds insult to injury. The competition and its stadium stand on the bodies of thousands of migrant workers and those suffering under abject human rights abuses. This is a disgrace to sports, the LGBTQ community, and champions of human rights alike. The pro-establishment narrative comes from DW. Sports and politics shouldn't mix. While the World Cup has highlighted some ongoing issues within Qatar, Doha has done much to address these and the Arab world has every right to enjoy and take pride in the tournament. The World Cup belongs to the global community, offering a rare and important opportunity to foster a spirit of camaraderie through athletics. And we have a cynical narrative for this story coming from Spectator UK. The European Football Association's cowardly U-turn only serves to highlight that they're far more interested in virtue signaling than taking a decisive stance. It's easy to be a social justice warrior when one's own head isn't on the line. You watched the uh, U.S. World Cup game today against Wales? No, I did not. Did you? I, I, I watched it this afternoon. That yeah. Was, uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we blew it. So it was a tie. Should have won. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.